Oh, what revelations await a newly married man. My Annie began to look at everything in our small apartment with new eyes. Things that seemed perfectly okay be windows could no longer be covered with bed sheets. They simply need real curtains with something called valances. The sofa arms needed lace doily, adequate floors suddenly needed throw rags. The bathroom needed matching towels and washcloths. We needed wicker waste baskets instead of an own. I am convinced that part of God's plan in creating romantic love is that the man should not hesitate to make these changes for his beloved. Wishes became my commands. But lo, barely had one wish been granted that a new in my simple male mind, I thought each wish was an end in itself, but no plan in creating romance. It is that the woman should have these urges because she is by nature a nest builder, and the nest she is building is not a love, rather it is the kind of place in which to nurture children. Ah, things were coming fast. One day I came into the apartment to see Annie staring at the bare cross and one of her mandolin-playing fingers was tapping thoughtfully upon her lips. What is missing, my love? We do not have much space here. I think we should take advantage of that big bare wall. What do you have in mind? A picture? I had yet to learn never to answer for her. I'm not sure it exists, but something that would hold things like shelves for books and pictures. Can you see it? It would cover the entire wall and straddle the sofa. The sofa, there would be a sense that we are people of substance. What do you think? In fact, I began to picture it in my mind. Let's sit down and draw it, custom made, and I know just the person to do it. In our congregation was a man who made smaller shelves and pieces of furniture. His name was Mr. Horn. In his shop, and his finished work was exquisite. This would be a big job for him, but energies into it with abundance. He would want to make the finest piece of furniture, would learn that he had done it, and new business would come to him. Perfect. I took Annie's drawing of the wall unit to him. He made an estimate. It was second to none, so his price should not underestimate the outcome. Annie and I dipped into the precious monetary gifts people had made to us on our wedding day. We barely had enough, but this would be the crown jewel in our living space for the two years we would spend in Flensburg. I agree work immediately. As we anticipated the outcome, I began to feel I had outdone myself. I had really provided something that was symbolic of my love for any honey-do list. Honey-do this, honey-do that. One Sunday at church, Mr. Hornick announced that he would have our wall unit delivered. He was glowing with pride, and I knew he had something that was far beyond his normal scope. We were filled with excitement and high expectations. He made a time in the morning for us to meet him square outside the main entrance. The next morning we both stood on the doorsteps of the Hansen Rum building. To our left the street descended from a hill and entered the intersection. 
The main thoroughfare handled two-way traffic. Traveling dread hit the pit of my stomach. Looking to the left, I saw Mr. Hornick, our woodworking brother, driving his car down the incline to Orchid. Strapped our prized wall unit on top of his Volkswagen sedan. It pro the front and back and over both sides. Ropes and pads were holding in. I could hear his brakes squealing as he struggled to keep his down on the steep descent. How could he have jeopardized all this weeks? He did not want to spend a portion of his profit margin to obtain two men with a truck to Hopperley. I was furious to see it. Had I known what he had planned, I would have. At the bottom of the hill, the worst that I could imagine happened. He suddenly encountered traffic. Fearing a collision, he engaged his emergency brake. The wall unit ejected from his roof and flew forward into the intersection, sliding across the cobblestones and smashing into the steps of a neighboring building where it broke into pieces. He leaped from his car, holding his head in his hands. I'm ruined, I'm ruined, he cried. I've lost everything. I had to disagree. He had not lost his life, which was something. I felt like taking it from him at the moment. I could almost see myself strangling the man. He ran to the wall unit and fell to his knees. I'm ruined, all is lost. He carried on like one of his children had been struck by a car. I looked at Annie. We were both speechless and horrified. The crown jewel of our humble parsonage lay shattered in the street. I went to where the man was kneeling in anguish. What about insurance? I asked. Surely you have insurance to cover such a thing. Yes, but if I collect it, my rates will be too high to maintain. My insurance was not made for claims of this size. At this point, I began to pray inside of myself, Lord, what shall I do? The answer came immediately with a sense of complete calm. You must spare your brother. Though I had every right to demand that he use his insurance to make us a new one unit, I would not do that. I knew that he would not be ruined by it, but in his mind he believed that he would be. All the hopes and expectations Annie and I had built up for this day were let go. Plan B became God's plan A. It was more important to save my brother from his own perceived disaster than to impose my standards on him. Here is what I propose, I said. Let's get these pieces into the house and you bring your tools to put them back together. I want you to patch it up and see if you can make it look like new. We will take delivery of this wall unit. That is what we did. As we recovered from our shock and disappointment, he was actually able to repair that unit until only one part of it appeared damaged. Nothing could be done to repair the left side base where the cobblestones had removed significant portions of the wood. When he had finished his repair, and he took a large plant,
and placed it in front of the damage. There, she said, smiling grimly, who will know? I learned a great lesson. When dealing with human beings, anything that can go wrong probably will, sooner or later. We should hold our expectations in check with this truth. We take precautions whenever we can to avoid disaster, but sometimes we cannot cover all the bases. We are at the mercy of people God has placed in our circle. The Apostle Paul put it this way, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. As our two years in Flensburg passed, that wall unit became a symbol of something far more than we had first expected. It reminded Annie and me every time we saw it that we were our brother's keeper. Our pleasure at owning something fine and elegant was replaced by the Lord's eternal pleasure at having spared our brother. I am with child, Annie said softly. She stood looking down at her midsection, one hand resting lightly there. It still amazes me how these words could slam the brakes on every activity in my brain. Since our wedding day, I had been in constant motion. We were both so excited and blessed to be serving God together in Flensburg. Time had flown like a train at top speed, and we had hardly been able to stop to catch our breath. Each night, we converted our sofa into a sleeper, and back again into a sofa at the break of dawn. There were more activities on our list of things to do than we could possibly check off in a week. There were worship services to conduct, Bible studies, prayer meetings, board meetings, organizational meetings, paperwork, counseling, preaching, paying the bills, celebrating weddings, and conducting funerals. In between, we did odd jobs to keep house and home together, and we constantly put money away for Africa. But when Annie said she was pregnant, the treadmill stopped instantly. I didn't know what to say at first. Hallelujah, I finally shouted when I could find my voice. I hugged her and then stupidly asked, I wonder, is it a boy or a girl? Of course. How could you know? The words had just slipped from my mouth and I immediately sensed a bit of trouble. How often had I said it? During our courtship in the months leading up to our marriage, in the weeks that followed, I had said again and again in my youthful enthusiasm, Annie, give me a houseful of boys. I want six boys. Yes, six. I love sons and so I want to be a good father to them. Why had I been so thoughtless? What if this child was a girl? It had begun to dawn on me that with an actual pregnancy I now had to consider realities, not fantasies, and the consequences of my exuberant words were suddenly serious. It was then I began to know the root of my problem. How often had my mother spoken of her disappointment at my birth? Too many times to count. It was like a broken record. 
Though she loved me, she often recited the fact that she had wanted to have a girl in the worst way, and I had been her fifth son. My birth seemed to have weighed her down like an extra burden. It never occurred to her that her words would have a lasting effect on me. Of course, if I had any choice in the matter, I would have chosen not to disappoint my mother. In so many subtle ways, I had tried to make up for it, but my efforts had only backfired. I had been the naughty boy, the troublesome one, the disappointment. This was a load a child should not have to carry. Now I could see why I had become so overly zealous in my wish for a house full of boys. I didn't want just one boy or two or three. I had stated my ridiculous wish for six boys. Why? Because I did not want a son, especially not my fifth son, to feel unwelcome the way I had felt, not even for a moment. How often does it happen that a childhood vow ends up producing the curse it seeks to cure? After speaking so thoughtlessly to Annie, a daughter born of this pregnancy might now produce disappointment to her. She so wanted to give me one of those six boys just to please me. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I began a campaign of reassurances. And you know this child you are carrying is from God, our Heavenly Father. He has sent the perfect baby to us. If it is a girl, I will be as happy as if it were a boy. Do you know that? Do you? She smiled and nodded. But there was a veil deep in her eyes. I could see it. My words could not be retracted. I had intended no harm, but the harm had been done. Annie carried a burden with this child growing in her womb. In spite of her better judgment, in some part of her soul, she surely felt she must produce a boy. In the meantime, there was nothing the doctor could do to solve the question. These were the days before ultrasound, by which parents can learn the sex of the child after only twenty weeks. We would have to wait nine months to know the outcome. These were also the days before birthing rooms. Fathers were not considered worthy to be present at the advent of their children. For better or worse, it was an event reserved for the doctor, the nurse, and the mother. As Annie went into labor and entered the hospital, I remained in our apartment, pacing and praying. I prayed God's full protection over her and his blessing on the doctor and nurse and on everything involved with the birthing process. My prayer laid hold upon the truth and the promises of God's word. He is good. No matter what comes, He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. We are safe from the devourer. In Him we have rest. The phone rang. Reverend Bunky, you are the father of a fine son. My jaw dropped. A son! Annie had been spared the effects of my words. I felt so exceedingly blessed and unworthy. Is Annie safe? Is she okay? She is just fine. Mother and baby are doing fine. 
Hallelujah, I shouted. The entire Hansendrum building could hear me now, but it wasn't enough. I needed a huge celebration, and I knew just the ticket. On Annie's wall unit, we had placed the phono. I found a long play record album of Handel's Messiah and set the turntable to the Hallelujah Chorus. Turning the volume as high as the speakers would bear, I raced to the windows and threw them open. Leaning out, I shouted to the chorus and to the pedestrian traffic crossing the square, Hallelujah! I have a son from God. The Hallelujah Chorus backed me up. It was a fitting symphony to match the joy in my heart. I decided that this would become a traditional way for us to welcome each new child into our family. I would announce them with the Hallelujah Chorus at full volume on the phono. Two girls were to follow our son in the years ahead, and I can testify that the celebration for each was as joyful and fresh as the first one. He was a beautiful baby. We named him Kai-Uwe, a traditional German and Scandinavian name. His full name was Kai-Uwe Friedrich Bonke. His name has many shades of meaning, but I was pleased to learn that in certain cultures Kai had the meaning of fire and Uwe came from the word for blade. And so my son would be a sword of fire in the hands of the Lord. Amen and amen. God is so good. Our family was off to a rich start. We do not send missionaries to South Africa. The words echoed in the cold hall like plaster falling from the ceiling in an empty room. It was one of those rooms where the scent of mothballs waged a battle against the omnipresent smell of mildew. Annie and I huddled together. A half-dozen members of the Felberter Mission Board looked at us from across a long table. They were the official missions arm of the ACD in Germany. They worked under the auspices of the Apostolic Faith Mission in South Africa. The AFM provided training and guidance, and the ACD provided the financial support to our German missionaries who worked there. That was the arrangement. As we waited in the room, bear-like fixtures dangled from the electric cords high above us, providing illumination. I suppose the white light in the white room was a fitting atmosphere for an interrogation. To us, it seemed a bit like an inquisition. You say you were called to Africa when you were just ten years old. That is correct. Africa is a huge continent with many nations. I nodded. So why do you insist that you cannot go to Zambia? One of the members asked. The AFM can provide a position for you in Zambia. It is very simple, I answered. A few years after God called me to Africa, he called me to South Africa, very specifically. In a prayer meeting, I received a vision of the city of Johannesburg on a map. I didn't know where the city actually belonged on the map. When I later checked the world atlas, I found that the vision had been correct. God knows his geography. He called me to the country of South Africa. But the AFM has no openings in South Africa. I do not need an opening, 
I will gladly pioneer a new work from the converts God gives me as I did in Flensburg. That would be wonderful, but we have no way to provide oversight if you do not go to Zambia. Then, what am I to do with my calling? We can offer you Zambia. It is south of the equator, as close to South Africa as we can get. Besides, it is a beautiful country. The great Victoria Falls are there and the Zambezi River. You could start there and later move to South Africa, if that is still your heart's desire. Oh no, South Africa is not my heart's desire, I said. It is the place God has called me. That is an important difference. It was a long interview. I stuck to my guns about my call to South Africa. Eventually they agreed to a compromise. I would serve a South African apprenticeship for a year under an AFM minister named Reverend Stephanus Spies. His work was anchored in Ermelo in eastern Transvaal. His sphere of ministry covered the Transvaal region and extended into Swaziland. When the ACD, the AFM and Reverend Spies all agreed to the plan, I felt that God had given me great favor. Most of all, I was so very pleased that we had honored his call given to me in the childhood vision. We would be working on the edge of Johannesburg. It was 1967. Annie and I prepared to leave in earnest, but another surprise waited in the wings. Reinhardt, she said, I'm with child again. Kaiuvu was not a year old, and another child was on the way. Once again my thoughts were arrested. Our departure for Africa would be made the more challenging, especially for Annie. But as we discussed it, she assured me that she had trusted God from the beginning. She was called to the life of a missionary, and such challenges went with the territory. We would continue packing uninterrupted. The only difference was I refused to allow her to lift things. It also helped that we were packing light. The wall unit went to Annie's mother. The sofa bed was sold. All our belongings that remained made a very small package. We kept nothing that would tie us down. The Volkswagen Beetle was traded for a Volkswagen Type 2 camper van. In America, this rear-engine vehicle was becoming popular as a hippie van. Its boxy looks made it appealing to the growing counterculture. But for Annie and me... It would provide a shipping container for our belongings and reliable transportation once we arrived. Not to forget, it would convert easily into a temporary living quarters. We felt this would prove ideal when ministering in needy areas of Africa. It also provided low-cost travel expenses as we made our way southward on the German Autobahn. We crossed the Swiss Alps and the Italian Alps to Trieste, racing to meet a departure date on a ship bound for Durban, South Africa. As the sky-blue water of the Adriatic Sea came into view, I flashed back to my boyhood when I used to stand on the Glückstadt Pier, feeling like this day would never come. How time had passed! It did not seem like such a long time ago. We would not be departing from Hamburg, but from Trieste, 
Italy. It would be a long-awaited epic voyage for us, nonetheless. Saying goodbye to our friends, family and church in Germany had not been difficult. Our eyes had been set on this day since we first met, and we had been saying goodbye in effect to everyone for years. We were so excited to finally be going. When you pull up roots in order to fulfill a divine destiny, there is not a sense of pain or loss. Rather, there is a sense of great expectation for things to come. From Trieste, our cruise ship went to Venice. However, the Lord slowed us down for our own good. In fact, a dock worker strike played to our great advantage. It delayed our departure in Venice for ten days, which provided us with an unexpected honeymoon in one of the most romantic cities on earth. Those were the days we have never forgotten. Three other missionary families were traveling on the same ship. Each day Annie and the wives took turns babysitting the children so that the others could spend the day exploring Venice. That gave Annie and me two days out of every three to be together, just the two of us. What an abundant blessing! We thoroughly enjoyed our honeymoon in Venice, expenses paid. At last we sailed for Africa. Our route took us through the Adriatic, passing by Italy's toe of the boot and into the open Mediterranean. These were the waters sailed so often by the Apostle Paul. We continued southeast past the Greek islands to Egypt and to the entrance of the Suez Canal. The canal would take us into the Red Sea, which in turn led us into the great Indian Ocean. Sailing south along the east coast of Africa, we would eventually reach the port of Durban. As we entered the Suez Canal, I remained on deck watching the process. The strip of water was a man-made wonder that allowed ocean-going vessels to sail 100 miles through desert sands between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. It had no locks because the sea level on both ends was virtually the same and no elevation changes were needed such as were found on the Panama Canal. As we sailed through the sands of Egypt, we passed an airfield. I noticed that it was filled with hundreds of brand new white Russian MiG-21 jet fighters. In recent days, the saber rattling between Israel and her Arab neighbors had increased. I had been keeping my eyes on the news. Annie, I said, look at those MiGs. I feel that war is near, very near. In fact, our ship was one of the last to pass through the canal before Egypt ordered United Nations peacekeepers out and took control of the canal. Soon after, Israel launched a surprise attack, beginning what is now called the Six-Day War. Israel virtually destroyed Egypt's air force on the ground, including all the shiny new Russian mix I had seen on the bank of Suez. The loss of military hardware was far more than Egypt could afford, even though greatly outnumbered by the armies of Egypt, Syria and Jordan, 
In a matter of six days, Israel had gained control of the entire Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights, the West Bank and Eastern Jerusalem. It stands as one of the most miraculous military victories in modern warfare and called to mind Bible prophecies that God would once again fight for Israel. As the Middle East fell into turmoil, the passengers on our ship discussed our near miss if the dock workers' strike in Venice had gone on for one more day and we had enjoyed more sightseeing, we might have found ourselves in the middle of the conflict. Our ship would have been held up in the Suez Canal until the mess was resolved. In fact, 14 ships that followed us remained trapped for the next eight years. Once again, we saw the blessing and confirming hand of God upon the choice we had made to follow him. Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. We needed that confirmation because an immediate trial came to test our faith. As soon as we left the canal and entered the Red Sea, Annie became very sensitive to the motion of the ship. We joked about Moses and the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry land. We would gladly have walked rather than endure more of the sensation. We were not sure if it was motion sickness or morning sickness or a combination of the two, but her condition became worse. Her complexion became like green cheese and she got so sick. Forget the dry land. She would gladly have allowed herself to drown with Pharaoh's army rather than go on like this. We called the ship's doctor and she was kept under medical supervision as we continued toward the Gulf of Aden and our entrance into the Indian Ocean. We had a long voyage ahead and I so wanted her well enough to enjoy it. My hopes were dashed. In fact, she was miserable for the rest of the trip. For several days we continued down the eastern coast of Africa, sailing through the Mozambique Channel between the African mainland and Madagascar. The voyage grew long and I had brought along an accordion. I began to sit in a deck chair and teach myself to play it. Annie lay in the infirmary and the hours were on. As I think back on it, my fellow passengers may not have appreciated my diligence in this matter. By the time we had arrived at our destination, I had become quite accomplished. We emerged again into the waters of the Indian Ocean near the southern tip of Africa and cruised towards our berth in the harbor of Durban. At last, Annie was able to get out of bed and walk. Perhaps she was inspired by anticipation of soon being able to place her feet on solid ground. The worst of her ordeal was over. I had received scant instructions from Reverend Spice that we would be met in Durban by a man named De Toy, a French name. That is all I knew, De Toy. As we approached the docks, I could see more than a thousand people waiting to greet passengers. Out of that great crowd, how would I ever find Dutoy? Coming down the gangway, I had an inspiration. My eyes swept the crowd, and I shouted to the top of my lungs, Hallelujah! Sure enough, out of the crowd, one voice shouted back, Hallelujah! He was a white man, which disappointed me. 
I had come expecting to be met by an African. Very few black people were in the crowd waiting to greet our ship. I held Annie's arm as we left the gangway and felt the dock beneath our feet. She held little Kaiuva in her arms and began to gain new strength with each step on solid footing. When we approached the man who had returned my hallelujah, I extended my hand. To toy, I presume. He laughed heartily, recognizing the famous line from the meeting in Africa between Stanley and Livingston. He took my hand. Yes, he was the toy. After he gave us directions, we took off, heading to Ermelo and to the home of Pastor Spies. And that is how we took our first steps onto the soil of Africa, our land of destiny. Part 4. Preparation Years Father, may everything I do prepare me for everything you will do. Chapter 17. In many ways, my first year in South Africa was the most difficult. I was filled with great expectations, high aspirations, and a sense of divine calling. But I ran smack into apartheid, the ugly policy of racial separation, and right where I did not expect to find it, entrenched within the Pentecostal Church. White South Africa was a prosperous land dominated by European society. The people who ruled were Dutch, German, French, and British. They enjoyed life with every modern convenience, while most black South Africans suffered in deep poverty. My call from God was to the black people. I had preached to enough white faces in Germany. Why should I be required to do more of it before launching my ministry? But if I was to continue under authority, I would have to submit to the program the Felberta Mission and the AFM for me. We took up an extended temporary residence with Reverend Thea in Ermelo. They were very kind and provided well for us until we were able to move. Bonky was born and I could raise my voice with a great hallelujah chorus. They lived in the designated white part of the city, Blacks. The Apostolic Faith Mission had church buildings in both the white and black air separately. Reverend Spies also told me that he conducted preaching missions to this next assignment. I was delighted. Bring your guitar, he said. When the time for the mission outreach came, he drove his pickup truck. My guitar. Three black pastors rode in the back. He explained to me the update policy. He believed in the wisdom of this racial system. It had been developed a best way to keep good order in the country. The location we were to use for the meetings was a schoolhouse in an outlying village. When we arrived, the gay show up and do what they are supposed to do when they are supposed to do it, Spee said disgustedly. The gates have not been unlocked, so we will make do and climbed over the fence. Follow me for the next one or two years, and you will in Africa. 
I handed my guitar over the fence, and we all climbed over after him, eventually joined by three people from the local area who had shown up to hear Spiess's sermon. Three people! There was no electricity. He lit five preachers and three listeners. We could have done better on any street corner. I listened to his sermon, waiting for some sign of I knew I would not last long with this man, given my burning desire to see him to Jesus. In the meantime, he informed me I would not be allowed to preach in white. It's no great loss to me, I said. I came to preach to black Africans. You will not be allowed to preach to the blacks either. Excuse me? You will not preach till we have taught you the South African way, he said. And, of course, we have to examine you, Unist. After that, you may get your own district. At first I thought he was serious. The Communist Party had gained traction in South Africa because of apartheid. I began to feel as if I had been bound and gagged in the basement of the Grand Inquisitor's Hall. I could not imagine that Jesus Christ would obey the law in opposing apartheid. Jesus himself might be suspected of communist sympathies. I requested a meeting with Dr. F. P. Moller, president of the Apostolic Church. I found an understanding ear. He agreed to order Spice to loosen his grip and allow me to preach. He encouraged me to remain in the program for one board that I be assigned to a black African part of South Africa. I thanked him loosely and returned to the mentorship of Reverend Spice, feeling that I might be able to church in Ermelo as well as in his whole district. I was so happy unity. I spent much time in prayer, asking God to give me just the right words, drove me to the church and introduced me. This was so special. My first, in my mind, I saw the shape of the gospel and preached the words that filled the outline. I felt had answered my prayer. The faces of those beautiful people lit up with delight as I delivered the ABC of the gospel in a way that made them know they were the upper, not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. After the meeting, Eros, are you speaking of? First, you shook hands with black people. That is not to be done. Then, in your sermon, I could not believe my ears. What should I call them? What is mense? It is a word that means people, before answering. Then I shook my head. Reverend Spice, if the blood of Jesus does not make us brothers and sisters, then I was as if I had hit him with my fist. He turned red at the collar his eyes. He could not reply. We were two preachers from two different... I was beginning to wonder if we preached two different gospels. I could not imagine here. In the meantime, Annie and I found a house. We could afford to rent at 8 Ennis Street, and we moved into it. Our first challenge was to find furniture. We looked at beds and found the prices far too high. Off to one side in the store, we saw some metal bed frames that were well within our budget. 
they would work just fine. A white sales lady took the order from me and shouted to the back of the store, Moses, bring up two servants' beds. At first I wondered how she knew that we were servants of God. Then it hit me that black people slept on metal beds in South Africa. This was what she meant by servant beds. I immediately embraced the idea with delight. Jesus had said, He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. I was happy to accept those beds in the name of Christ and identified myself with the black people of South Africa. Over the years, I had many a fruitful night's sleep on those beds and many a divine dream. They live warmly in my memory to this day. One day there was a knock at our door. To our surprise, a lady from the Ermelo City Council stood there. I understand that you have hired a black housemaid. Oh yes, my wife needs some extra help. It allows her to travel with me. I'm here to inspect your kitchen. Oh, I said, you are a building inspector. I thought I understood the purpose of her visit. No, not the whole building, she said, just the kitchen. You see, we know that you are new to South Africa. That's why I have been sent to see that you are in compliance. Compliance? What will make us in compliance? You must have separate dishes and serving ware for your housemaid. These are to be handled separately and kept separately. That is apartheid. I felt sick. I began to wonder why God had called me to this particular place, knowing about its racial problems. If I had known the suffocating system I would labor under with the AFM, I would have chosen Zambia. At least there, I could preach freely to black people. I could shake their hands. I could call them brother or sister. But in my memory, I had not seen the name of Zambia in a vision. I could still see the name of Johannesburg gleaming before my spiritual eyes. Since God had called me here, surely he knew how to make a way for ministry under the yoke of apartheid. I prayed for guidance. As we talked it over, Annie and I decided we could not dismantle apartheid on our own. We would not be able to preach the gospel if we made that our aim. But we could preach the true gospel which brings liberty, not bondage. And we could resist the system in as many ways as possible. One day Reverend and Mrs. Peace came to visit. Anya just announced that she was pregnant again. I had continued to receive the missionary magazine put out by the Felberter Mission of the ACD in Germany. One issue featured South Africa. It cited a statistical study of whites and blacks comparing income, life expectancy, infant mortality, and other quality of life issues. It vividly demonstrated that the standard of living for blacks was far below that of whites. The differences were disturbing. I showed the study to Mrs. Peace and asked her opinion. She scowled and studied it but made no comment. 
Days later, Reverend Spies asked me to come see him in his office. As I took a seat, he placed a copy of the Felberter Mission magazine on the desktop between us. Apparently, his wife had given it to him for his opinion. Are you making a habit of distributing offensive material? A habit? No, sir. In fact, I've better things on my mind. Was this the only copy in your possession? Yes. Why do you ask? You didn't order extra copies? No. You didn't distribute this material here? No. I am, of course, still on the ACD mailing list, and I am here with the cooperation of the Felberter Mission. It is only natural that I would continue to get their magazine. I don't write it. I don't edit it. They decided to do the feature on South Africa on their own initiative. He pushed the magazine toward me with disgust. Well, Reinhard Bonke, your traffic light in South Africa has turned from green to yellow. One more incident like this and it will turn red. With this, I'm afraid I hit my limit. Reverend Spies, my traffic light is worked by heaven. If heaven turns my light red, only then will I go. I must make it clear that even though Reverend Spies and I stood squarely opposed, we did become lifelong friends. This was especially true after I was no longer under his supervision. But our confrontations during those days built a kind of bridge of personal respect between us. Because of my father Hermann's struggle with the rise of the Nazi regime in Germany, I had a certain sympathy for how a system like apartheid can sneak up and capture good people. They become caught up in a system until they can no longer look at it with clear eyes. All of South Africa was headed for a tremendous upheaval in the years ahead. These events would force the ruling regime to enter the modern era. Spies represented the old way that was passing. By following my calling, God had automatically aligned me with the future. I suffered through the first year under Spies' scrutiny. I had not accommodated smoothly to apartheid, but he had at least become convinced that I was no communist agitator. Dr. Moller made good on his promise to recommend me for reassignment. After deliberation, the AFM board gave me a choice of four positions they would make available to me. One of them was with one of the largest white churches in South Africa. This amazed me. After being allowed to preach in both black and white churches, I suppose I had established a reputation that opened up this possibility. It was a very lucrative and attractive position, and it gave real political power to the one who filled the pulpit. If I had wavered in my call from the Lord, I might have considered this position as a place from which I could wield a stronger influence against apartheid and make progress in favor of white support for missions and outreaches to the blacks. As it was, I rejected it without serious consideration. Reverend Spies was astonished, 
much as my father might have been back in Krempe. Another of the four positions, the least attractive of all, was the kingdom of Lesotho. It was a small landlocked nation of native Africans south of Johannesburg. The AFM did respect Lesotho as an independent country. However, their administration came from South Africa. It was a district that no one else wanted to handle. If I chose Lesotho, they would make me the AFM overseer of three small churches that they had managed to establish there over the years. I felt the Lord leading me to take this assignment, and I gave them my decision. In 1968, I moved my family to Ladybrand, a small town on the very border of the kingdom. Shortly after moving there, Annie delivered our third child, our second daughter, Susanne Bonke. With another resounding hallelujah chorus, our family looked forward to serving in Lesotho as a true missionary family. I began to travel in my Volkswagen to see the country for myself. It is no bigger than the state of Maryland, but because of its natural beauty, it is called the Switzerland of South Africa. This is where the Drakensberg Mountains rise 11,000 feet above the Zulu Plain. The headwaters of the Orange River, the longest river south of the equator, tumble from glacial snowbanks in the highlands. Nearly all of Lesotho's 1,200 miles of road were unpaved. The high country had rocky, narrow trails that ate missionary vehicles for breakfast. Often I would drive as far as my van would go and be forced to walk or ride a horse or mule to reach a particular village. An average Basutu village sheltered no more than 250 souls. The almost one million Basutu tribesmen I found living in this high-altitude kingdom were an independent breed. They were Africa's cowboys, highly skilled wranglers who pastured herds of grass-fed cattle in rich natural meadows. When a man married in Lesotho, he would give 15 head of cattle to the bride's family, a proof that he was an adequate provider. Often when a man was sentenced in court, he was required to pay his fine in cattle. Families lived where they tended their herds. Their huts consisted of mud and handmade brick with thatched roofs. They were scattered at unpredictable intervals across this high and lonesome land. On my first journey through the mountains, I saw a group of shepherd boys tending goats and sheep in the pouring rain. I got out and approached them. They were nearly naked, shivering in the cold, but they were not seeking shelter. I gave my coat to one of the boys as a gesture of goodwill. When I returned on the next trip, I brought an ample supply of clothing for them. They seemed to receive it with joy. But when I returned two weeks later, I found the same boys in the same condition, nearly naked, tending their flocks in cold weather. It was such a discouragement for me, but I pressed on seeking God for the key to this land. It was surprising to learn that nearly half of these African cowboys and herdsmen were literate. 
They were largely bilingual, speaking English and Sesotho. Two-thirds had received formal education. This had come through the missionary schools that had been active in Lesotho for more than a century. Even with a Christian background, however, I found half of the tribesmen remaining true to ancestor worship. The other half came from families that had converted to Christ generations ago, but had become hardened to the gospel over the years. Few of the Basutu had a living faith. The churches I found were dry and empty. During this time, Annie and I attended a national AFM conference in Johannesburg. We spoke with others about our choice of assignment. They described Lesotho as a hard place. They called it the boneyard for failed missionaries. I was beginning to understand the spirit in which the missions board had recommended this land. Perhaps it was a kind of test. If I chose Lesotho over the other choices, they would know that I was truly called by God or was perhaps crazy. At the same conference, I was delighted to meet a black Zulu preacher who was highly celebrated in the AFM. He was holding great tent meetings all over South Africa, and his name was making headlines because of salvations and miraculous healings. His name was Richard Ngidi, and he told me that if I went to Lesotho, he would be glad to come and hold meetings to help me get started. This greatly encouraged me. Soon afterward, the missionary boneyard almost claimed me for its own. While traveling in a remote area, I exhausted my canteen and felt myself nearing dehydration. In those days, we did not carry large quantities of bottled water as we do today. I was so driven by thirst that I ignored the wisdom to always boil water before drinking. I knew better than to do that. In my travels, I had already encountered the graves of many missionaries who had died from deadly black water fevers. I drank straight from a well. When I arrived home that night, the awful stomach cramps began. I knew I was in a fight for my life. I began to hallucinate and drift in and out of consciousness. My appetite was gone, and Annie had to work to get fluids into my body. After three terrible days of delirium, I began to see a kind of vision. I saw something like a black blanket, a dark shroud floating down over me. It seemed that I would be smothered by it. Death was very near for me, I knew. Then somehow I could see through the blanket. On the other side, I saw the face of Jesus, and a wonderful peace flooded my heart in the midst of my delirium. In the next moment, I heard the voice of dear sister Elise Köhler praying for me. I knew that voice from the many prayer meetings I had attended in Krempe. I heard her crying out to God to spare my life. In that moment, the fever broke, and I began a slow and steady recovery. As I gained strength, I wrote a letter to my father asking him to go to Sister Köhler and ask her what happened that day. 
the story I got back truly touched my heart. Early in the morning before the break of dawn, the Spirit of God awoke her, saying, Pray for Reinhard, intercede for his life, because he is dying in Africa. She prayed for most of the day until she felt a breakthrough, a release by the Spirit from the prayer assignment that she had received from the Lord. That is when the fever broke and I began my recovery. Once again, my spiritual connection with the German Pentecostals proved to be a divine appointment. At last, the mission sport made my appointment to Lesotho official. They assigned me to supervise in and around Maseru, the capital city. This was the largest town in Lesotho, yet it had a population of merely 38,000. It was not far from Lady Brandt, just a short drive across the border. We moved there and left apartheid behind, finding a home in this black town. Our house was small, with a corrugated metal roof. We moved our metal-framed servants' beds into the bedrooms. Kai Uwe was three years old, Gabriele two, and Susanne merely an infant. I found an office in town that seemed suitable for my church management duties. Only after moving in did I discover that I had established the AFM church office next to the office of the National Communist Party. We could hear them cursing through the walls. They could hear us praying. Dear Lord, I thought, what will Reverend Spice think? Not only that, everywhere I went in Lesotho, in my heavy German accent, I announced myself as a German who had no allegiance to apartheid. That might have endeared me to some of the locals, but to communists, the history of bloodshed between the Soviets and the great German enclave of East Prussia rendered all Germans anathema in their eyes, even those like me who might want to reject the South African way. Every day when I approached my office, I expected to see it burned to the ground or perhaps vandalized with anti-German slogans. I chuckled to myself and considered that God's mysterious guidance was somehow at work here. He had given me converts at a sinful circus in Flensburg. He had housed my first congregation in the Hansen Rum building. Now I was rubbing shoulders with communists. What next? I found that the city of Maseru had a different quality of life than in the rural areas. The men living here were no longer proud wranglers herding cattle in the high country. These former herdsmen now worked far away from home in the gold and diamond mines of South Africa. Mining only allowed them to visit their wives and children for a few weeks of the year. Family life had broken down. The men sent money home, and this flow of South African currency propped up Lesotho's frail economy. It was a devil's bargain. In the exchange, the independent Basutu tribesmen lost an idealized way of life. The mining jobs were demeaning, and the wages made them forever dependent on apartheid South Africa. They were not happy campers. Most men remained unemployed. 
The Communist Party had moved into this climate of misery. They preached their godless doctrine everywhere, promising a brave new world for the people of Lesotho. Of course, communism is a pipe dream on which they could never deliver. As soon as possible, I traveled to visit each of the three churches I was to oversee. The first was about thirty miles northeast in the village of Fobani. Not a dozen people were in attendance, plus the local elder. I took bread and wine to conduct the communion service. In Germany we had always used red wine for our observance. As I poured the first glass, the elder took it up and drank it in one gulp. I thought, oh my, this man must be hungry for God. I poured another cup for him to share, but he did not share it. He drank this one down also. Thank God I have another bottle in the van. As I prepared to pour another cup, one of the members whispered, Pastor, he can't help himself. He is a drunkard. I don't think he's ever tasted such fine wine. I turned to the man. He did not deny it. A drunkard shall not serve as an elder in this church, I said. You, sir, are dismissed. You need to repent and prove yourself worthy of this assignment. Do not call yourself an elder. The next Sunday I visited the second AFM church in another outlying village. In this one the elder began telling me the wonderful things God was doing through ancestral spirits. These Christians were actually continuing the idea that their dead ancestors were still present with them and would intercede for them with God. I told them, this is evil, it is not from God but from Satan, you must repent from this. They were greatly offended at me. I realized that since they had been exposed to the gospel and had turned to this pagan practice instead of continuing their relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, I would be wasting my time and energy trying to straighten them out week after week. This was not my calling. There were others not in church that would receive the true gospel and not have this compromise. Those were the ones I had been commissioned to call to repentance. Finally, I visited the church in Kolonyama. Reverend Pizzo, with the main congregation, did not even understand why I wanted to see people saved. He did not understand that there was a difference between being born again and being lost. There were a total of five people sitting in his pews. I thought it was five too many. For me, there is a mystery here. Africa is a place where Christian missionaries invested more than a century of effort before my coming. I must say that I respect the work they have done. I am constantly reminded that the harvest of souls I see today is a harvest I did not plant. Others sacrificed their lives to scatter the gospel seed to these regions long before the invention of the tools we use to harvest massive crowds today. Those who have gone before us have labored in obscurity, laying the foundations of faith among these tribes. I must never forget that. However, 
The mystery to me is how the life-giving message of Jesus can become dead, how a fresh move of God can grow stale. It happens. The first step, I think, is when methods that worked in the past are enshrined and any new wind of the Holy Spirit is resisted. Old ways are repeated without inspiration by many who labor as professionals. Perhaps they do it for money. They become what Jesus called a hireling for the Lord. If one comes who dares to break the accepted patterns, he is persecuted. They have forgotten that the Lord seeks a living and growing relationship. He resists being entombed in a method or a building or an organization, no matter how successful it might once have been. Jesus spoke of the problem of putting new wine into old wine bottles. The old bottles will burst, he said. This helped me to see my way forward in Lesotho. I told Annie that I was not going to invest my life in those dead churches. I did concede to preach at the local church on Sunday, but the rest of the week I began to seek out new converts on the streets and in the villages of Lesotho. I am happy to report that my approach of going to the people with the gospel eventually brought revival to those dead churches as well. But that happened many years after the small and very discouraging beginning. I began to take my accordion to the streets and play and sing together a crowd. I would take up a spot near the market and at a bus stop, any place where people were likely to be passing. Eventually people would gather to hear the nice-singing German boy with the blonde hair and blue eyes. Then I would take up my Bible and launched into the ABC of the Gospel very quickly before they could get away. It was just like my first street meeting as a boy in Glückstadt. In both cases, I saw someone come to Jesus. At the end of my very first sermon at the bus stop in Maseru, a tall, thoughtful young man stepped forward. I'll never forget him. His name was Michael Collisang. He wore a colorful blanket wrapped around his shoulders. It was the popular fashion for Basutu tribesmen, those who still worked cattle. He spoke to me through my interpreter. I want this Jesus you have just preached about. I want him. What better response could I ever want from a sermon? I want this Jesus you have just preached. I thought maybe it will be this way every day in Maseru. Little did I know it was beginner's luck, pardon the expression. After that day I preached many sermons and saw no response. I took him into the front seat of my Volkswagen microbus. With the interpreter helping from the back seat, I led him through the salvation scriptures. Then I prayed with him to accept Jesus as his Savior. Michael Collisang has been at my side ever since. He is today a bishop in Lesotho, pastoring a thriving congregation of thousands, overseeing several other churches, and running a nationwide Christian radio station 
called Jesu K. Carabo. In some ways, Lesotho reminded me of Germany. It was a gospel-hardened land. Everyone was religious and believed they already knew what Christianity was all about. They had the been-there-done-that attitude. Responses like Michael Collisang's were few. Dolphin Monesis was more typical. Dolphin Monese was a bright young student in Maseru. He had a big happy smile and flashing brown eyes. But when he argued, his brows would knit together and his jaw would clench. He took his arguments seriously. Dolphin studied the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He liked the way they attacked the Christian church. The church in the kingdom of Lesotho had become weak and ineffective. Rather than follow a dead Christian religion, Dolphin attacked it. That was his way. In Maseru, he had become a Jehovah's Witness champion. He walked to school each day with a group of friends. They would discuss the great issues of life, and he would impress them with his knowledge. One day, as they walked along, they saw a blind man at the bus stop playing a piano accordion for money. Dolphin wanted to take a closer look, especially since the blind beggar was a white man. But as he came close, Dolphin could see that the man was not blind and was not a beggar. He was singing happy songs of praise to Jesus in the local Sesotho dialect. The man is a simpleton, he thought. Suddenly the man put down his piano accordion, picked up his Bible and began to preach. One of the men in the crowd began to interpret for him. It was a trick. The man had used his music to attract people out of sympathy. The simpleton was clever, at least, Dolphin thought. He knew that it was not easy to gather a crowd in Maseru to hear preaching. No problem. Dolphin had read many books about the Bible. He knew that Christians considered Jesus to be equal with God, a part of what they called the Holy Trinity. Since he could easily defeat these silly doctrines, he would listen to the preacher's message and then argue to set him straight. It would provide amusement and another way to impress his friends. As you might have guessed, I was the blind beggar on the street corner that day, preaching my heart out. As soon as I finished my sermon, Dolphin stepped forward, not to accept Jesus, but to argue with me. Since he spoke English, he was able to argue without an interpreter. My interpreter, George Masoka, was happy for the break. He often said that he had never worked so hard for a preacher in his life. I wore him out with four street sermons per day, and he wanted a raise in pay. Dolphin jumped into his Jehovah's Witness arguments headlong. I just smiled and listened. I knew that I could not change the young man's mind by meeting him on the same battlefield of the mind. I invited him to sit down with me on the curb. He did, but he never let up. I knew that deep inside, Dolphin was worn out by the demands of his own arguments. But I didn't know if he was tired enough
to let go of them. He seemed to like arguing so much. He went on and on with his attack on Christianity until the entire crowd that had gathered that day had gone away. Even his friends had departed. It was the two of us sitting on that street curb, and only one was talking. Dolphin. May I say something? I interjected. He was in the middle of the thought and had to finish it before he could stop himself. At last he paused. Yes, what is it? I want to say how much God loves you. You and I and everyone in the world were born in sin. We were bound for eternal hell. Yet he loved us enough too. There is no hell, he interrupted. Punishment in hell is an idea the popes made up. They did it to make people afraid so they could control them. I'm not falling for any of that. You will have to argue with scripture, Dolphin. Eternal torment is clearly in the Bible. The popes did not make it up. But that's not the good news. The good news is that God loved the world, even in its sin and gave his only son as a sacrifice for us. Salvation is a free gift paid for by someone else. We cannot earn it by being smart, or by learning all the right things, or by doing all the right things. When we accept God's great gift, he fills us with love and peace, and we are promised eternal life with him in heaven. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? I gave him this ABC. Dolphin went away promising he would come back to complete the correction of my bath theology. I welcomed him to return, but I must say, inwardly, I hesitated. I knew he would take advantage of my open door. And he did. He returned every day after that. His school breaks were timed so that he could come and hear me at the bus stop. Then his after-school walk brought him by my market location for another sermon. He would start more arguments. This pattern continued day after day. In time, I found the opportunity to counter most of his arguments from Scripture. But still, this was not enough to convert him. He came again and again to argue and perhaps for other reasons he would not admit to me. He was a tough nut to crack. One day as I preached, I sensed the powerful anointing and presence of the Holy Spirit. After my sermon that day, Dolphin stepped forward. I am ready to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, he said. Amazement, almost disbelief, leaped up in my heart. This was an incredible moment. Suddenly, this young man who had come to argue had no arguments. In that moment, the Holy Spirit whispered inside of me, telling me what to do. I sensed in my inner conversation with the Lord that Dolphin must not just make a decision for Christ. He must make a clean break with the Jehovah's Witness at the same time. This was a source of bondage that still remained for him. Let's go into my car, I said. He did. When we were inside, I said to him, 
we will drive to your house and burn all your Jehovah Witnesses books. Are you ready to do that? Immediately, Dolphin had an inner struggle. So much of his knowledge was bound up in those books. They had given him pride and a place in the world. They had made him feel superior. I thought that if I did not place a clear choice before him, he would go into a time of struggle that would last for a long time before he would finally be free. Years of unfruitfulness could follow. Choose Jesus or Jehovah's Witnesses, I said. This is the choice you make. Not two ways, just one. At last he nodded. Yes, you are right. Let's go and get the books. This was a sign to me that the spirit of Jesus had entered his heart. He was opening himself up to its cleansing power. By burning these books, he was burning bridges to his past, bridges that the devil would have loved to have kept under constant traffic, back and forth, back and forth, between Jesus and Jehovah's Witnesses for unnumbered days ahead. Religious bondage is the worst kind. I drove to his house. He went inside and brought out an armload of books, putting them in my Volkswagen microbus. Are these all of them? I have another shelf of books at my grandma's house in the village. We will go there and get them. Get in, I'll drive. But I don't own those books. They are borrowed. I will pay for the books you borrowed, but we will burn them all today, borrowed or not. Dolphin agreed. He gathered all the books from the village together and put them in the car. I purchased a gallon container of gasoline. We drove to his brother's house, where he knew he could find a barrel for burning. I had him place the books inside. We doused them with the fuel. I handed him the match. When he lit it and dropped it into the barrel, an explosion of flames leaped into the air. I felt a great sense of relief. As the books burned, I could see a new Dolphin Monisa emerge. The burden of carrying a heavy religious yoke was exchanged for the easy yoke and the light burden of life in Jesus Christ. Joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, all the... F in the years that followed, Dolphin grew in his faith. I asked him to be my interpreter. He learned much about preaching and ministering through the process. He went on to Bible school, church in Lesotho. His intellect and personality are submitted to the will of the Lord to many thousands. Both Dolphin Monese and Michael Collison were with me in Lesotho. Today we are growing old, and when we get together we share so many. It is one of the great blessings that come from a life of serving God. Chapter 18 After many months, my main congregation in Maseru grew to 50 men. White South African churches began to extend invitations to me as a guest speaker. I turned these invitations down. 50 new converts was hardly a drop in the bucket of God I desired to see. I had much work to do. 
I continued my exhausting, and the results were pitifully few. My original interpreter had quit, worn out. Dolphin Monese had taken over and now served, but the hardened religious soil of Maseru was taking its toll. The youth service in our home. Dolphin and Michael Collisang helped me gather interested young people from the streets of Maseru into our home. There we would serve refreshed scriptures, always ending with an invitation to accept Jesus. I had a second-hand store. Those who wanted to be saved, I invited to kneel at that table in those early years. As the young people knelt, I led them in the prayer of salvation. I really felt the presence of God in those invitations. But it also might have been that their hearts were opened by being welcomed into a white person's home. The evangelistic team were born again right there around that coffee table. Suddenly Annie called to me, Reinhardt, come here and see. I came to the living room. She was kneeling at the little coffee table with a wet cloth poised in her hand. On the other hand, she pointed to the surface of the table. When I came near, I saw due to the work of the Holy Spirit. We were honored to see this evidence of hearts opened to the Lord of the universe. And it happened in our living room. And more tears stained that coffee table, corroding its lacquer finish. Merely a coffee table, it was a treasure, a monument, a reminder of the people in Macero. But soon this led to an important question. Kai grown old enough to attend his first grade in school. Where would we educate him? Kitsitseng Primary School in Macero. I heard such sad stories in Bible school in Wales. Many of those students were children of missionaries. They had been, in every case, these children were hurt and embittered against their parents. I do not want that for our children. She got no argument from under any circumstance. After only a few days in school, however, Kauvikam aside, you are so sad. What is wrong? The other boys make fun of my Kauve. They say it all sorts of funny ways, and it makes me feel bad. It had to be done about it. It is interesting to note, however, that discrimination is a problem. It has nothing to do at all with being black or white. Here, my son, the for his funny-sounding name. People are people. This was not a problem for the classic problem for a parent to solve, and I was determined to solve it. Well, I knew that it was not going to be an improvement. Ah, no, I have it here. How about Freddy? There's a name that comes from our middle name. Call you Freddy. Freddy? Yay! He liked the sound from now on. The next day, I accompanied him to school and announced that my Freddy was not going to be called Kai Uwe any longer. He was going to be called... But Freddy he became, and the problem ceased. After much hard that if I didn't change my ways, I would never reach the far-flung villages of Lesotho. And three other young converts, five students in all, were taking so much of my time and me that there was little left over for expansion. Then it came to me. 
that I could, that would go far beyond me. It could be distributed to many literate male. Using the pattern of teaching I had used with my five students in the Bible in following Christ, it was an evangelistic course. I was able to raise enough money to buy a small offset press and learn to print myself. A missionary from the Felberta Mission, Bernd Wenzel, felt called of the Lord to join our church, and then thousands were enrolled. With the increasing printing press costs, challenged them to support these efforts. That is what I did, and soon the funds were available to continue growing the enrollment. I also expanded the printing operation to include an evangelistic magazine. The magazine followed the correspondence course and began to find wider and wider distribution. I traveled and told the story of what God was doing, and the white churches very graciously responded, sending more money. It was at this time that I began to hear of resentment from other missionaries. Perhaps they were not experiencing the same breakthroughs, or maybe they were unable to raise the funds I was raising in the prosperous South African churches. Then again, it might have been pure jealousy. Whatever the cause, some of my fellow missionaries began to talk about me in negative ways. This became one of the most difficult challenges I have ever faced. Some suggested that my ego was leading the way, that I thought I was special. My new methods and ideas were described as somehow arrogant. When I heard of it, I vigorously defended myself. I wanted to make sure everyone knew that I was led by a burning desire to see souls saved. But no matter how I wanted to make that clear, people continued to say and believe what they wanted to say and believe. It hurt me deeply and truly distracted me. I am, by nature, a fighter. At AFM conferences, I would find times in which I would confront my accusers, argue with them, and defend my actions. But this, too, was a mistake. Nothing seemed harder to ignore than the critical words of my brothers in Christ. Some made no effort to hide their criticism. I was forced to learn to bless those who cursed me. And he alone knew how hard my struggle was. One day I emerged from my office to be confronted by a horde of cursing communists. They cursed God and blasphemed the name of Jesus to my face. Here were enemies I could understand. We served different masters. Suddenly I felt the power of the Holy Spirit surge within me. I said, In the name of the One whom you are cursing, I say to you that within one year your feet will no more walk the streets of Maseru. I knew as I spoke that I prophesied. The Holy Spirit had spoken through me with these words. They were not from my own mind, neither did I know that a few months later Lesotho's Prime Minister Leabua Jonathan would declare a state of emergency and all communists would be rounded up and sent to jail. It happened exactly that way, 
and the story of my prophecy raced around Maseru like lightning. Some people began to fear me. Rumors ran about that God talked to Reinhard Bonke, and that he would even tell Reinhard what people were thinking. Of course, this was superstitious nonsense. In this situation, however, my brethren worked to discredit me. It was even suggested that I had lied or exaggerated what had really happened. Some thought I was motivated by ambition, not by the Holy Spirit, and that I was trying to make a great name for myself. In desperate prayer and in counsel with my wife, I began to let go of these things. Until I let go of them, they would not let go of me. It is said that resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. There is no room for such a waste of energy in the service of God. I began to learn that it is not my place to defend the work of God. But I must confess there were times when I took all my German willpower to hold myself back. In my congregation, as in all of Maseru, there were many unemployed young men. One day it came to me that I could give them employment while furthering the gospel in Lesotho at the same time. The plan was to give each young man a bicycle equipped with a weatherproof box. I would send them from house to house, village to village, offering our ministry magazine for free and selling a hymnal and a Bible to those who wanted them. In this way, I could train witnesses to reach Lesotho and provide employment for these young men at the same time. In the land of the African herdmen, these young witnesses became a version of circuit-riding preachers. It was a method of spreading the gospel that had been used effectively in history. As I traveled in white churches, I presented this vision and found sponsors willing to provide the specially designed tricycles. I started with five, then ten, and then finally I had thirty riding the rough trails of Lesotho's high country. It was so successful they soon earned more than twice the average wage of other young men in Maseru. Some of them went beyond sales and became true soul winners and eventually pastors. Within two years, this group of hardy travelers had visited every village in the kingdom of Lesotho, exposing one million to the gospel message. Hallelujah! Eventually, the correspondence course enrolled 50,000 students. This was success beyond my wildest dreams. No one could ignore the effectiveness of this outreach, especially in a hard land where missionaries were expected to fail. In the meantime, the Bible college I had founded in Maseru, that had begun with an enrollment of five students, now had grown to 40. In a missionary boneyard, we had seen dead bones live again. With no allegiance to the methods of the past, we were forging a new future by following the voice of God. It happened not because we were special, but because we obeyed. 
I offered the loaf of living bread. He multiplied it in my hand. My phone rang. Brother Harold Horn, someone I had known since my arrival in Lesotho, said, Reinhardt, come to Kimberley and preach to us. I said, I will come. I knew that Kimberley was a town of about 100,000 residents, located about 160 miles to the west. Like Maseru, Kimberley was an isolated community. For a century, it had been famous for its diamond mines. The world's largest diamonds had come from there. The entire area was steeped in the lore of fortunes mined from the earth. Mining continued to be the backbone of the economy. The Kimberley mines were owned and operated by the descendants of white settlers. However, the back-breaking toil in the mines were performed by black men, many of them from my own country of Lesotho. The church that I would visit in Kimberley, however, was a whites-only congregation. When I arrived, I remember it was a cold evening, the skies were patchy with clouds, and a chilly wind gusted from the peaks around me. Harold drove me to the church where I was to preach. We had agreed to a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday series of meetings. That first Friday night, as I sat on the platform, I looked across a gathering of about 200 people. Not one young person did I see in the room, not one. I leaned over to Harold, who was near to me, and asked, Where are the young people? He nodded sadly, acknowledging that I had correctly seen the problem. Every head in the room was grey. I preached, the service was closed, and the people filtered out to their cars to go home. When they had gone, Harold came to me. Reinhardt, would you like to see the answer to your question? Would you like to know where all the young people of Kimberley are? Yes, I would, I replied. I will show you. Get into my car, and I will take you there. Where are you taking me? It's a surprise, he said. He remained mysterious about it. He drove through the streets, turning this way and that, until he came to a large building at the edge of a warehouse district. The building was ablaze with gaudy neon signs. One large sign blinked out the word, Disco! 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 The parking lot was jam-packed to overflowing with vehicles. We parked on the street a block away. As he turned off the key, I could hear the boom, boom, boom of the heavy bass beat coming through the walls of that building. The so-called music seemed to shake the very ground beneath us with an ungodly spirit. This is a den of iniquity, I said sadly. How awful! This is where the young people have gone. Harold nodded. This is the latest thing, Reinhardt. It is called a discotheque, a dance club. It is a craze that is sweeping the whole world right now, and young people everywhere are very attracted to it. I felt a shiver go down my spine. 
How could the church compete for the attention of their youth against such temptation? The quiet little church building we had just come from and this pulsing giant warehouse could not see more opposite. The disco was so large, so energetic, so loud and so overwhelming. Again I could see the faces of the old people I had preached to just an hour ago. They had all come to hear Reinhard Bonke preach to a room with no young people in it. Now they were, no doubt, sitting at home in houses with no young people in them either. The young people were here, indulging in all sorts of sensual pleasures. At least they could feel confident that their parents and grandparents would not disturb them here. The older generation would not dare to enter this jarring and frightening and sinful atmosphere. Harold got out and stood for a while, leaning against the hood of his car, listening. I got out too and stood next to him. We could hear the music now above the booming bass. It was terrible, terrible music. I couldn't really call it music. I thought of how gently I played my piano accordion, singing happy songs about Jesus to attract crowds on the streets of Lesotho. The sound of my little accordion here would have been totally drowned out. No one could have taken any notice of it at all. I began to feel small and insignificant. What do the young people see in this disco, Harold? I asked. He shook his head, mystified. I don't know. I truly don't know. After a while he said, let's go inside. Oh no, I said, let's go home. I've never gone to such a place. It would be an abomination to me. I would not know how to act. And what would the people think of me as a preacher? It's unthinkable. To this moment, I had gone along with Harold simply out of curiosity. Where were the young people? I had asked. Now I knew. It was a sad reality of modern life, but I could do nothing to fix the gulf between young and old in neither Kimberley nor anywhere else in the world. Only a revival of faith in Jesus could do that. I would go back and preach my heart out to the old people again on Saturday and Sunday. Perhaps God would move on their hearts and they would begin to make a difference in the lives of their own young children. That seemed the best I could hope for. But as I turned to get into the car, I felt bad inside. I stopped in my tracks. This is when the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. Since I had come this far, something seemed wrong, as if I now turned away. But I had no idea what the Spirit wanted me to do. I just couldn't leave. Let's take a look inside, Harold suggested. Suddenly this seemed exactly right. Everything in my spirit said, yes. I nodded. Okay, Harold, let's go and take a look at the disco. We began to walk toward the building. What would I do? I had no idea. It was against everything in my body and my mind. 
but not against my spirit. I simply obeyed the gentle urging inside. We came to the door and stood there. I felt the Holy Spirit say to me very clearly, Look inside. I will show you something you do not know. I took a deep breath, then opened the door. The blast of the music must have knocked the hair back from my forehead. I have never heard such volume in my whole life. It was deafening. But it was in that instant that I received a spiritual vision of the reality of the disco. In the flash of the strobe lights, I did not see young people dancing with joy. I saw frozen images of boredom, fear, loneliness and insecurity, one after the other, captured on the faces of those young people. The split-second flashes of light revealed these images over and over and over again, like stop action. Each of those haunted faces spoke to me of emptiness, pure emptiness. Now I knew what the Holy Spirit had wanted me to see. It was not what I had expected. These young people were coming to see the disco, seeking something they did not find. No matter how they threw themselves into the beat of the music, it always came out the same, empty. I understood in that moment that I had what they were looking for. I could show them the way to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I could show them the power to live a life of joy in spite of the world's many disappointments. But all of the blessings of life in Jesus would never come to them in a disco, no matter how many dances they pounded out. And how would they hear the truth without a preacher? No preacher would be caught dead in this place. Curiosity and revulsion was gone. In its place I felt the undeniable compassion of Jesus searching within me. I wanted to weep for the precious searching young people of Kimberley. They lived in a city that was diamond crazy. They did not know that they were the precious jewels God sought for his own crown. They were more precious than all these mountains of wealth. He cared enough to die for them. Suddenly, I could not care less what anyone thought of me. I knew that I would preach in this disco. Nothing could deny the love of Jesus that I felt. I shut the door and looked at Harold. I heard the Holy Spirit say in my heart, Find the owner of this place. And so I said to Harold, Help me to find the owner of this disco. What good will that do? I must talk to him. Let's find him. But what will you say to him? I will ask him to let me preach in this disco. Harold laughed. You won't do that, Reinhardt. I will. I absolutely will. Harold followed me now. I inquired inside the disco, and we were led to an office at the rear of the building. 
The owner was a middle-aged businessman who looked to be very much a part of the rock and roll culture. He had long hair, gold chains around his neck, an open-collared shirt and blue jeans. I said to him, Sir, I've come all the way from Germany. I'm asking you for permission to allow me to address the young people in your disco for just five minutes. He looked at me from top to toe. You're a preacher, he said. I was still dressed in my suit and tie. I nodded. He said, if you want to preach, you should preach in a church. There are no young people in the church, I said. They do not come to church, so the preacher must come to the young people. Now, give me five minutes, only five minutes, I ask of you. You've got to be kidding. He shook his head in disbelief, then turned around and walked away. There is no way, man. He had no sympathy for my plea at all. As he was walking, suddenly the Holy Spirit touched me again. He said to me, Tell him what you saw when you looked into the dance hall. I went after the man and took him by the arm. He turned to face me again. One question, sir, I said, looking deep into his eyes. Do you think the young people find what they need for life in your disco? Slowly the face of that man changed. He looked down thoughtfully. When he looked up again, he said, It's very strange that you would say that. I have children of my own. I thought many times that the disco will not give the young people what they need for life. I beg you, sir, give me five minutes with them. He was thoughtful for a moment. Okay, but not tonight. Tomorrow night, Saturday night, at midnight, I will give you the microphone for five minutes. I grabbed his hand and shook it. It's a deal. And thank you, sir. I will be there. I was so happy I could have kissed him. I could feel the Holy Spirit in the whole thing that was happening. It was something I would never have thought of on my own. As Harold drove me to my room, I began to beat myself up a little bit. I only asked for five minutes. How could I be so stupid? I started to pray. I said, Lord, I foolishly asked for only five minutes. Now I'm stuck with five minutes because I put that figure in his head. Why did I say that? After riding some more in silence, I prayed again, a bit better this time. Lord, I said, nothing is too hard for you. You created the world in six days. You can save the disco in five minutes. Please do not let my foolishness be a problem to you. Amen. All that night I tossed and turned and prayed. I prayed and prayed. The next night I preached to the old people at the church. I remember nothing. 
I think I must have preached badly because my heart was pounding with anticipation for preaching to the lost in the disco at midnight. When the congregation had gone home to their houses, I asked Harold to drive me back to my room. I undressed from my suit and dressed in casual clothes. I did not want to look like a preacher just coming from a church. I needed disco camouflage. Harold went home and quickly changed his clothes too. As we got in his car, he paused to look at me. Reinhard, what do you think the people of the church would think if they knew you were going to go tonight to a disco? I think they would never come to listen to me again, I said. You won't tell them, will you? He smiled and shook his head. No, of course not. Nor will I. We drove to the disco, arriving at 11.30 p.m. I had half an hour to wait. The parking lot was even more crowded on Saturday than it had been on Friday. I guess in Kimberley they had what you call Saturday night fever. I took my Bible under my arm and my piano accordion. I don't know why I took the piano accordion with me, but there it was. I took it with me into that disco like a security blanket. Inside, it was insanely crowded, shoulder to shoulder, skin contact. We had to push our way between the people to get past them to find a place to sit. Finally, we came to a bar with a stool. I sat on that stool and waited and waited for midnight. When at last the clock struck twelve, the music stopped. I jumped up and onto the stage where the records were being spun. I took the microphone from the disc jockey and shouted, Sit down, sit down, sit down. I've come all the way from Germany. I've got something very important to tell you. Suddenly the young people began sitting down everywhere. It was then I realized I was not in church, but in a dance hall. There were no pews, only a few bar stools at the perimeter. Most of the young people plumped right down on the floor. There they sat, smoking cigarettes, chewing gum, waiting for me to tell them something very important that I brought with me all the way from Germany. I started to preach. One minute. Two minutes. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit was there. I mean, the wind of God blew into that disco. Suddenly, I heard sobbing. I saw young people getting out their handkerchiefs and starting to wipe their eyes, crying everywhere. The disco dance floor was quickly becoming another table of tears. And I had preached enough to know that when people start shedding tears, it's time for an altar call. I said, how many of you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? How many want to find forgiveness of your sins and enter God's plan for your life as of tonight? Every hand that I could see in that place went straight up. I said, all right, repeat after me. We prayed the prayer of salvation together. My five minutes were up. My work was done. 
I left walking on cloud number nine, rejoicing, absolutely rejoicing that I had been privileged to help these young people find what they would never find in a disco. A year later, I returned to Kimberley. Harold met me at the airport. He said, get in my car. I have a surprise for you. I got in his car. He did not say anything about it. He just drove through the winding streets until he came to the warehouse district. The car stopped. I looked out of the window. I could not believe my eyes. I wiped them and looked again. Instead of seeing the big disco sign, there was a huge cross on the front of that building. This is not the surprise, Harold said. Come inside. We walked up to the door where we had stood one year before. The door the spirit had told me to open. I remembered the pounding beat of the music that had assaulted my ears as we stood there that Saturday night. Now I heard another sound coming from the inside. It was a kind of chant growing in volume. Are you ready for this, Reinhardt? Harold swung the door open, and I looked into a packed house full of young people. They were chanting, Bonky! 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 I cried out with joy. They rushed to me, hugging me, shaking my hands, bringing me inside. One young man said, Remember me? I was the disc jockey. That night you came to this disco. Another grabbed my hand. I was operating the light show. Another said, We were dancing that night away. Now we are serving Jesus. After you left town, the disco went bankrupt. Harold shouted to me, The disco is now a church. He was beaming from ear to ear. A fine-looking gentleman came up to me. We heard about what God had done to the young people here. My church has sponsored me to be a pastor to these kids. I stood again on that disco stage, looking at those faces, so different from the ones I had seen in the strobe lights a year ago. The lights were up full now, even more. The light of the Lord's favor was shining on their face. I pointed my finger to heaven and shouted, Jesus, Jesus. They shouted back to me as one, making the walls to tremble. Praise Jesus, praise Jesus. He is Lord, he is Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, that disco was rocking the right way. Kimberly's true diamonds were shining in their father's eyes. Chapter 19 I had a dream that changed everything. I saw a map of Africa. Not South Africa. Not Lesotho. Not Johannesburg, but the entire continent. In my dream, the map began to be splashed and covered with blood. I became alarmed. I thought, surely, 
This meant some kind of apocalyptic violence was coming, perhaps a bloody communist revolution. But the spirit whispered to me that this was the blood of Jesus that I saw. The terrible violence that spilled his blood happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. Then I heard the words, Africa shall be saved. When I woke up, I had a problem. My mind filled with new thoughts that made me uncomfortable. Before going to sleep, I had been happy to see 50,000 people enrolled in our correspondence course in Lesotho and further afield. After this dream, I could not be happy with that number. I am a German who had struggled with math as a boy. But even I could do these calculations. I had learned that the continent was home to 478 million souls. If I had taken my five years to reach 50 people in Maseru, plus another 50,000 beyond the walls of my church through correspondence, that pace would average 10,010 souls per year. There is nothing wrong with that number, but I would have to live to be at least 47,752 years old to see a blood-washed Africa, that vision fulfilled. I thought I had done well. In light of this dream, I could see that I was far behind God's agenda. In my mind, I began to discount the dream. Perhaps I had simply eaten bad bananas. The next night, the same dream returned, and the next night, and the next. And there were not that many bad bananas in all of Maseru. After the fourth night, I said to my wife, Annie, I think that God is trying to tell me something. He now had my full attention. Would I take seriously what he was saying to me, or would I deny him? Would I choose to believe God's math, or would I believe my own? God had brought me to another crossroad that would define the future. Never mind that I could not compute it. Never mind that my progress so far was a mere drop in the ocean. God had said, Africa shall be saved. Would I repeat his words? Would I begin to speak in faith what I had seen in my dream? Or would I retreat into silence like another corpse in the missionary boneyard? I knew one thing that would keep me silent. It was the fear of what others would say or think. I could hear my critics. Who are you to say Africa shall be saved? They would say. This is the cutting question Satan throws at God's servants in order to silence them. Who do you think you are? I wondered, will some people say again that I am ego-driven if I speak this dream? Yes, they will. Will my words make some people uncomfortable? Absolutely, yes. I sensed that these words would mark me as surely as Joseph's coat of many colors marked him in the eyes of his jealous brothers. 
It would be like painting a target on my chest. But then I asked myself, is that a reason to be quiet when God has spoken? No, a thousand times no. It was not about me. It was about God and his call. Since I was a boy, I had obeyed his voice. I was one of his sheep. The Bible tells us that all of his sheep know his voice, but some teach themselves to ignore it. He calls, and they conclude it is bad bananas. This we must not do. Whenever God spoke to me, even as a child, I made my mind fit his words and not the other way around. God had given me the dream of a blood-washed Africa. Then I would begin to speak it because of who God is, not because of who I am. All that I am, I am by the grace of God. So I have nothing to lose by obeying him. Rather, I have everything to gain. I decided that I would begin to say, Africa shall be saved at every opportunity. More than anything else to date, these words began to separate me from my fellow missionaries. Going back to that small tool shed in the garden at the Bible College in Wales, when I had failed at homiletics, it was then that I received from the Lord the calling of an evangelist. Perhaps being directed by the dictates of a missionary board had clouded the full scope of my calling for the past five years. I was not a missionary in the way they had conceived it. As I began to speak his vision everywhere, Africa shall be saved, my role was defined, both in my own eyes and the eyes of my colleagues. I was no longer a missionary, but a missionary evangelist. I believe so strongly that God is the worker of miracles for his people. I believe the signs that followed Jesus as he walked the earth could and should be true in our lives today. Jesus said to his disciples, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. But I was not seeing miracles in Maseru, and it distressed me. In fact, I often confessed to Annie in those days, My church is a miracle-free zone. What is wrong? No matter what I tried, or how I prayed and fasted, the situation did not improve. As time went by in my heart, I began to blame the people for their lack of faith. If only they had faith, I thought. They would experience wonderful miracles like those seen in the book of Acts. God had some work to do in my heart. First, he used Richard Ngidi to open my eyes. Richard was a Zulu evangelist well known in AFM churches throughout South Africa. After preaching, he would minister to the people in individual prayer and the miraculous power of God would always manifest. The lame walked, the blind saw, cancers disappeared. If you long to see the miraculous power of God on display, or so the prevailing wisdom went, book meetings with Richard Ngidi. And so I did. 
I had come to know him from attending AFM conferences in South Africa. One day I invited him to minister at my church in Maseru. He accepted, and I secretly felt sorry for him. I imagined that the faithless people of my miracle-free congregation would ruin his reputation. In fact, the opposite was true. When he ministered in Maseru, I saw the power of God as never before. The blind saw, the lame walked, and diseases disappeared. Richard Ngidi trusted the Lord no matter what he faced. He was bold in the face of great problems, and he had what I called a reckless faith. In his very loud, deep voice and confident manner, he commanded disease and sickness to go from God's people. It was as if blindfolds dropped from my eyes watching him. I was almost in a state of shock. I said to Annie, When God speaks, it is not for us to ask questions, but to obey the prompting of his voice. His word is above all else. I can see it now. I can see it now. Annie, God's word is not a question mark. It is an exclamation point. I have been too timid. My eyes were now open, but the truth did not fully possess my heart. After seeing a breakthrough in Maseru with Richard Ngidi, I was still timid. Perhaps I thought I did not have a gift of faith or a gift of the working of miracles as described in the writings of the Apostle Paul. I decided to invite another notable evangelist who had that reputation. I invited a man named John Bosman to come. He was a remarkable Dutch Reformed minister from Pretoria, and he was seeing miracles everywhere he preached. Perhaps having another exposure to the miraculous power of God would push me to the place of believing. I ordered our team to begin advertising. Meanwhile, our printing press in Maseru had become quite busy. Sponsors had stepped forward and helped us build the structure that housed it. In effect, we had our own little publishing company. After getting into trouble for naming it the AFM Press, I asked God what he would have me call it. He dropped the name into my heart that would define the rest of my ministry, Christ for All Nations. Our printing press became CFAN Press or CFAN Press. Bernd Wenzel, our professional printer, who had joined us earlier, cranked up the Sifan press to fill all of Maseru and Lesotho with the announcement of John Bosman's meeting at our church. We were able to coordinate local radio promotion for the meetings as well. We announced to the people that they should come expecting to see the miraculous power of God to heal the sick. Excitement was building. When the weekend finally arrived, our church building was packed out. People were crowded around the outside of the building. Many sick, lame and blind had been brought because of John's reputation for healing miracles. We had never seen this level of excitement for the work of the Lord in Maseru. I sensed that it would be the start of something big, a breakthrough. 
Bosman's ministry would burst the bonds of religious stagnation and satanic power that seemed to grip the region. With great pride and pleasure, I introduced John to the crowd. He came to the pulpit and preached. I was not especially impressed with his preaching. Like most of the people there, I had come expecting to see him demonstrate his gift of feeling. But then something happened that shook me to my toes. After preaching only a modest sermon, he turned to me and said, Close the service. I gasped. But not now. All these people have come expecting you to pray for the sick. I cannot possibly close the service. Close it. I was absolutely flattened. John, how can we do this? I will dismiss the people, but you must promise to return tomorrow and pray for them. Will you let me make that promise? Tell them the sick will be prayed for tomorrow. With a great deal of confusion, I did as he asked me to do. I closed the service, announcing that John would return in the morning to pray for the sick. When I turned, he had already gone to his hotel room. I slept hardly a wink that night, praying and seeking God in confusion about what John had done. The next morning I got up early and went to pick him up for the meeting. Passing by the church, I could not believe my eyes. The house was packed to capacity. Even more people were lined up outside, hoping to get in. The word had gone out that John would pray for the sick. Many more sick had been brought to the meeting site. I went to the hotel. When I arrived, John was loading his suitcases into a waiting car. What is going on? I asked in total confusion. Where are you going? Home, he said. He could not have done any more damage if he had taken a baseball bat and swung it to my midsection. I could hardly breathe. What do you mean you are going home? I just went by the church. It's already packed with people who have come. You promised to pray for the sick. That is why they have come. I promised that the sick would be prayed for. You promised that I would do the praying. Stay, John. I'll do the preaching. That's what I do best. You pray for the sick. That is what you do best. We'll do it together. Reinhardt, the Holy Spirit told me I must go. With that, he got into the car. The driver put it in motion and drove away down the street and then out of my sight. I stood there hoping that this was some kind of a joke. I felt like my best friend had just deserted me. I had so looked forward to sharing ministry with him. But when he said the Holy Spirit had told him to go, I had no comeback. That was the entire point of everything. We were to do what the Holy Spirit commanded, no matter how it went against our natural senses. I got into my car and drove toward that packed-out church of people who had been expecting miracles. Suddenly faith rose up inside of me, along with what I would call a holy wrath. 
Behind that steering wheel, I cried out to God, Lord, I am not a big-time evangelist. I am only a missionary, but I am your servant as well. Now I will go and do the preaching and praying for the sick, and you will do the miracles. Peace filled my heart immediately. It is the peace that only comes through our relationship with God when we abandon the world of the ordinary and enter his realm of the impossible. Hallelujah! As I drove on, I remembered the time when I was only ten years old and I had laid my hands on the woman in Father's church in Krempe. In very dramatic fashion, she had been healed. How I prayed that something similar would happen to me now. I walked into the church and told all my pastors that John had gone. The Holy Spirit had ordered him to leave. I could tell by the way the light went out of their faces that they could not see me in the same category as the great South African evangelist. To them, even though I had led them to the knowledge of the Savior, I had become the prophet without honor in his own country. Without tolerating another doubt, I began to take charge of that meeting with my words. I will preach, I said to my man, and Jesus will do the miracles today. With that, I went to the pulpit. The evangelist John Bosman has gone, I announced. But I have great news for you today. Jesus showed up. I will preach, and I will pray for everyone who has come for healing, and we will see miracles. I stood to preach. I saw the shape of the gospel. It was different this Sunday morning. I have never sensed the message quite like this. When I opened my mouth, all timidity was gone. I spoke with an authority I had never known before. Suddenly, the room became charged. The Holy Spirit was confirming the word in the minds and hearts of the people. About midway through my sermon, Dolphin Monese, who was interpreting for me, was overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit and fell to the floor. Everything stopped, except the listening crowd. They waited breathlessly for the next word. I waited for Dolphin to recover. As I waited, I was taken away from that place in my mind. It was as if all sounds and sights became muted, and I heard words of the kind that I could never conceive. My word in your mouth is as powerful as my word in my mouth. I could only take it in by the Holy Spirit. My senses would not go there. There was no question that I was now entering new territory in my relationship with God. This thought would never have occurred to me. It came on the heels of watching Dolphin crumble to the floor as he tried to repeat the words that I had just heard from the mouth of God. Something was happening here that only the Holy Spirit could give sense to. My authority in him was far greater than I had ever imagined. 
As long as I was in harmony with God's will, I was to speak things as God spoke them and to expect to see God's own results. Call those who are totally blind and speak the word of authority, the Spirit said to me. This rang a bell of memory in my heart. Louis Graff had treated the healing of the sick and the saving of souls as two sides of the same calling when he came to the Bonke household with the flame of the Holy Spirit in 1922. There are blind people here this morning, I said. I ask all of you who are totally blind to stand to your feet. Stand at once. I will pray for you. Around the room, several people rose. They stood swaying lightly, straining the other four senses to compensate for their loss of sight. I'm going to speak in the authority God has given me, and when I do, you blind will see a white man standing before you. Do you hear me? Your eyes will be opened. With that, I took a deep breath and shouted, In the name of Jesus, blind eyes open! A woman began screaming. She rushed from the back of the crowd, grabbing people as she went, looking at them, crying, I see! I see! I see! The room broke into pandemonium. Shouts of praise to God filled the morning, and no one was left seated. They were leaping and praising God. The entire room and many outside crowded in so that no one could even pass between the bodies crashed against the platform. When the woman reached the front, I invited her up on the platform. I asked what had happened. She said she had been blind for four years. Now she could see. I took my Bible and placed it before her. I asked her to read. She read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. It was all she could read before recognizing that Jesus had healed her. She was leaping and crying and praising God all over the platform area. The people were with her, filling that room with a surge of praise that threatened to raise the building of its foundation. I looked across the raised hands and the sea of heads before me and saw a sight the likes of which I have never seen again. A young child was being passed forward from the back of the room from hand to hand over the heads of the people. At last the child arrived at the front and was deposited in my arms. I looked down at the boy of perhaps three or four. His twisted little limbs were not what they should be. As I just looked at the boy seeing his twisted legs, I forgot to pray. Suddenly his little body began to vibrate in my arms. He slipped out of my arms and landed on his feet, running around. That day I learned that the Holy Spirit 
is a healing spirit. When he moves, people don't just speak in new tongues, but all things are possible. In the heart of the missionary boneyard, a dead church had become alive and overflowing with the power and love of God. When we had seen many more healings and miracles, and everyone knew that a new day had dawned in Lesotho, as the people left, I watched them, and tears were running down my face. I began to pray. Precious Holy Spirit, I want to apologize. I now believe that you sent John Bosman away because today you launched my ship. As I finally made my way home in the waning afternoon, I saw the pattern for the future. This is how all Africa shall be saved, I thought. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It was not a natural calling. It was not a natural enabling. It was supernatural. Nothing was the same in the days ahead. It was as if I was catapulted from one level to another, from one place to another. We acquired a second-hand tent and began to set it up at various locations and hold meetings. Soon a storm ripped the tent to shreds. Its rotten canvas was no match for the winds. We began to seek another. Some of the new expenses had depleted our cash on hand. Rent was due, and I didn't have it. I had walked to the office, which was not far from our home. While walking back home, I began to talk to my Heavenly Father. Lord, we need thirty rent today. Where will I find it to pay rent on time? Suddenly the voice of the Lord spoke in my heart. You've asked for thirty rand. Why don't you ask me for a million? I felt a chill run down my spine. Once again, God was challenging my small thinking. What if he gave me a million? What would I do with it? I began to calculate the improvements I could make. The fine tent I would purchase the trucks and vehicles I would buy to carry all our literature and people to the next campaign. Suddenly all the fantasies stopped and I became choked with tears. I realized that once again I was thinking too small. With people passing me as I walked along the road, I stopped and cried out from the very depth of my soul, No, Lord! I'm not asking for one million rand. I am asking for a million souls. One million souls less in hell. And one million more in heaven. That shall be the purpose of my life and ministry. The Holy Spirit replied, You will plunder hell and populate heaven for Calvary's sake. It became the motto of my life. I felt my father's full pleasure. I had no doubt that it would take far more than a million dollars to see one million souls saved, but I knew that I valued the souls above money. 
it was now God's challenge to supply the money necessary to reach a million souls. It was simply my challenge to obey his voice day by day. To me, it seemed that I had crossed the threshold in my relationship with him and I was very happy. But several years later, I realized that even in this answer, I had been thinking way too small. It is good that God takes us forward one step at a time. Shortly afterward, I was told I would be visited by a member of the Felberta Mission, the Missionary Outreach of the ACD, the Association of Pentecostal Churches in Germany. The mission sport had heard reports of the correspondence course I had begun of my purchase of a printing press for which they had sent the expert printer Bernd Wenzel. They had also heard of my fundraising for the bicycle circuit riders and more recently of the purchase of a tent and of its demise in a thunderstorm. It was known that I sometimes had trouble making rent let alone managing all these extra activities. Other Felberta mission missionaries had reported these things, complaining that Reinhard Bonnke was able to exercise more freedom in his mission than they were. The board had decided to send someone to investigate. The man they chose was the director of the mission sport himself, Pastor Gottfried Starr. When Gottfried arrived, I was sure that I would be able to show my German brother the extent of what God was doing in Lesotho. And I believed that once he saw the obvious blessing of the Lord, he would place his stamp of approval on it. In each of my methods, I assured him that I took full responsibility financially and otherwise. But he did not receive this explanation from me. He corrected me, assuring me that in any disputes about property or liability, the Felberta mission would be taken to court, not I. Legally, no one will sue you to recover damages, he said. They will sue the organization behind you. We have considerable assets at risk. Your assets are meager, so in a sense you are putting us out on a limb. You are putting our neck on the block. Do you see that? I saw his point, but I couldn't agree completely. If he stuck to this reasoning, then all of my success here was actually a liability to the Felbert emission. My dear brother, I said, do you not agree that there are certain risks worth taking, especially when you are in the business of saving souls? He did not answer. When the investigation was complete, Pastor Gottfried Starr stood firm. The Felberta mission cannot allow you to expand any further, Reinhardt. The risks are too great. A few weeks later, the full board in Germany agreed with this assessment in writing. My soul was smitten within me, as if I had been disowned by my own family. I had to leave Annie and go off by myself in desperation. I needed to talk with God, and even more, I needed Him to talk to me. As I prayed, I perhaps slipped into some self-pity. I told the Lord that I was sick 
of always being the naughty boy, always accused of having a mind of my own? Why am I always getting in trouble when I obey you? I want to be at peace with my brothers, I pled. Shouldn't we be, as Paul says, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? I want to submit to the Felberte mission and stop being driven by the burning vision you've given me of a blood-washed Africa. Well, sometimes we say things, even in prayer, that we do not mean. God is gracious not to break off the conversation. The Lord spoke back to me sharply. Yes, you can do this, but if you drop my call, I will have to drop you, and I will have to look for someone else. Just like that, my whining to the Lord was over. I went home and told Annie, Today I am resigning from the Felberta mission. Taking that action also meant that I would have to sever my relationship with the Apostolic Faith Mission in South Africa. AFM churches had become my main source of funding. After I wrote and sent a letter to the Felberta Mission, I called Dr. Moller at the AFM headquarters and told him what I had done and why. He was deeply grieved. He asked me to withdraw my resignation until he could intervene with the German organization pleading my case before them. I agreed to do this. Moller flew the German general superintendent of the ACP, Pastor Reinhold Ulonska, to South Africa to discuss my ministry. With Moller's explanation, he agreed to release me from the restrictions of missionary work to do the work of an evangelist. In the end, this wrenching exercise worked to our benefit. I remained a member of the Felberta Mission and continued my work with their blessing. But I was not happy that it had required my resignation to move this impasse forward. How many missionaries in the missionary boneyard were there because they did not have the stamina to break free and follow the Lord? None of this was easy for me. I was forced by these circumstances out of my comfort zone. It was God's time for me to enter into one of the most difficult transitions of my life. As I look back, I realize that sometimes that it is the only way he can get us to move in his direction. It is never easy, but it is always for his glory and ultimately for our good. Later I heard the chairman of the Felberta Mission, Pastor Alfred Kuschorek, say in meetings, we have one Reinhard Bonke and stand with him, but we don't want a second one. I could hardly believe my ears and said to myself, Wie schade! What a pity! Reflecting today, I would say that the Felberta mission was the baking oven in which God put me. The heat was atrocious, but the cake came out delicious. I recall that during this time my son had broken his leg. He had been doing some acrobatic stunts on his bicycle and had taken a bad fall. 
By this time his cast had been removed and his crutches put away, but he was still limping. He came home from school one day and said, Dad, today we did long distance running and I won the race. I broke into a great grin. I'm so proud of you, Freddy. I guess you are just like me. We are both limping to victory. Not only was I forced to redefine my role within my church, I also heard the voice of the Lord leading me to leave Lesotho. This was difficult in other ways. Whenever challenges like those that we faced in Lesotho are met and overcome, the heart grows fond of the hard places in life. I should say, especially fond of the hard places in life. In this way, Annie and I had grown firmly bonded to Maseru in the kingdom of Lesotho. We would have lived happily there for the rest of our lives, but God had other plans. Still, it is never easy to leave the land where your dreams come true. Success blinds us even more than failure. When you have gone to a corpse and breathed new life into it, you have seen more than most people see in a lifetime. Why move on? But I have found that God's thinking is never so limited. Unless we leave the land of our dreams, we may never see the land of his destiny. As I pondered the future, I remembered my boyhood vision from the Lord. The city of Johannesburg glowed like a beacon on my spiritual map. It was calling me now. I saw that I must go there, and I founded my own ministry organization to accommodate the vision for a blood-washed Africa. I called it Christ for All Nations, or CFAN, CFAN, using the name we had given the little printing press in Maseru. The Lord led me to locate the headquarters near the international airport because in evangelism I would be traveling heavily. I spoke to Annie about this. She knew that she would not always be able to travel with me. It was a sacrifice she had to be willing to make if the blood-washed Africa vision was to be realized. Her heart for the lost overruled her home-bound instincts. She agreed. For this, I praise God for her. I remembered the process of asking God if she was the right choice for me. He knew what a blessed choice she has been through these years. And so, on December 6, 1974, I moved my family to a place called Whitfield, near the Johannesburg airport. After we loaded all the boxes into a new house, Annie and the children seemed to be making the transition just fine. They were meeting new people, looking into new schooling, and settling into the new neighborhood, which had much more to offer them by the way of nice things. But I experienced what might be called a depression. I felt totally exhausted and drained and just sat around. This was not like me. I could not get up and get going. I felt like an uprooted plant. I had not found new soil yet. What made it worse is that it seemed God had stopped talking to me. For four weeks I continued in this condition. 
Finally, Annie made an appointment for me with the doctor. We had met through the AFM. He saw me and diagnosed me with ulcers. This was apparently from the stress of making the break with the Felbert admission and Lesotho at the same time. When people decide not to take risks, this is why. They fear they might suffer unexpected consequences. And, as my ulcers and depression proved, the risk is real. But is that reason to hang on to the past? To cling to mediocrity? No. Doing that is the first step along the path of seeing living faith become a dead one. The old place, the old building, the old method, the old success is comforting. The new step is frightening. We must place our trust completely in God to move beyond these comfort zones in life. That night, I lay sleepless in bed. The voice of the Lord spoke to me. Go to the city of Gaborones in Botswana. This word came out of the blue. But rather than lay in my depression until I died of bleeding ulcers, the next morning I telephoned a pastor I knew in that city, Pastor Skefers. I told him I wanted to come and see him that day. He agreed. Then I asked Annie to take me to the airport. I purchased a ticket on the next flight to Gaborones. Obeying God's voice was life itself to me. When I got off the plane, I realized that I had not even prepared for the trip. I had not thought even of money for food or taxi fare. No problem. God had called me here. This was an adventure of faith. So I walked into the city. Sometimes an anonymous walk through an unknown land will quiet the mind and instill the heart of the Lord in a man. I walked like Jonah through Nineveh and opened my senses to the city God had called me to. I encountered the sights and sounds of the children playing, chickens seeking insects on a swept dirt floor, laundry being beaten against a rock, Tripe stew boiling on a bed of charcoal, a mother steadying her jerry can of water on the head of her barefoot daughter. It was a place of desperate poverty and need. Like Lesotho, I thought only someone called by God should venture here in Gaborones. I walked through the markets and neighborhoods, sensing the presence and compassion of the Lord reaching out to this wonderful community. Turn right, God spoke. I turned right, and there before me was the Botswana National Sports Stadium. You will preach my name there. My entire being broke into full smile. The transition was complete. I was hearing my father's voice again, and my ulcers were gone. Chapter 20 Later that morning I arrived at Pastor Schaefer's home in Gaborones. I told him that I wanted to meet the city officials and book the National Sports Stadium for meetings in four weeks' time. He looked at me as if I had lost my mind. I'm a pastor who has 40 people in church on a good Sunday. 
How do you expect to fill the stadium that holds 10,000? I don't know about your 40 people, but I know that I just heard the voice of the Holy Spirit and I want to obey him. But 10,000 seats to fill, Reinhard, you have to build up to that. All right, we will build up to it. What is the largest hall in town? I want to book it. I will start there and then end up in the stadium. Bless him. He was humble enough to drive me to the authorities. I created a contract between Gaborones and Christ for All Nations, hiring a hall seating 800 for the first week. Then the stadium for the final nights of the campaign. However, as I put my signature on the line, I began to perspire. Somehow, I already saw that vast stadium with only 40 people inside. I had to find a way to fill it. As soon as I had finished, I called Annie and told her I was extending my stay in Gaborones. I would take some time to organize the local churches. I got a list of all the local pastors, and one by one I visited them all. Hello, I'm Reinhard Bonke. In four weeks' time, I will have a gospel campaign in your city. I've hired the National Stadium, but we will start off with the smaller sports hall. Please, let's all work together. I am inviting you. In sub-Saharan Africa, we have a very large vulture-like bird called the marabou stork. It is a scavenger that waits for animals to die in order to eat them. That's why it is called the undertaker bird. These scabarones pastors looked at me like a marabou stalk, contemplating roadkill. That all sounds very good, they said. But who are you? I said, I am Mr. Nobody. But God has spoken to me, and I believe it's going to happen. They said, anyone can say that. I said, but he really has spoken to me. Sorry, but we've got something else on our calendar for those days. Indeed, I felt like roadkill. I was tempted to berate myself for poor planning. What an amateur mistake to plan a campaign before securing the cooperation of the local churches. One after another, the pastors turned me down until all of them had said no. It was then that I woke up, spiritually speaking. Lord, you spoke to me and told me that I would preach your name in that stadium. This is your campaign. I will do the preaching, but you must fill the stadium. Peace came into my heart, and I took the next plane back to Johannesburg. Annie and I prayed and fasted and cranked up the printing press. We had one thing going for us. Pastor Skafas had promised that his congregation would support the meetings and would plaster campaign posters all over Gaborones. In the meantime, I attended an AFM conference that had long been scheduled in Quatema near Johannesburg. I wanted two things, 
First, I wanted to maintain my good relationship with Dr. Moller and our many supporters in that denomination. Second, I desperately wanted to ask the great Zulu evangelist Richard Ngidi to come join me in the Sifon organization. He was the man who was known for the many healing miracles that accompanied his ministry. I would preach, he would pray for the sick. We would be like salt and pepper, white and black together on the platform. This would be a testimony against apartheid. But I promised myself that I would not ask him to join Sifan. I would not want to seem to be stealing a prized minister from the AFM fold. When I arrived for the conference, Richard saw me and came running up to me. Pastor Bonke, he shouted, I hear you are starting your own evangelistic organization. You must let me help you. We must minister together. All the people in the lobby of that convention hall heard him say this. Well, the Lord had solved my problem. I was being pursued by Richard. I was not stealing talent from the AFM. As we spoke further, Richard said that he felt he would serve with me for about two years, and then he would return to his regular schedule with the AFM. I was happy. Two years seemed like a long time at the moment, and the Gaborone's meeting was sitting on my shoulder like a hungry marabou stalk. I quickly added Richard Ngidi's name to my publicity material. We began to explore the area of Johannesburg where we lived. One day, as I drove past a large abundant farmhouse, I heard the Holy Spirit say, That is your new headquarters building. It had been overgrown with grass and its hedges were untrimmed. I went to the owners and made an offer even though I had no money to buck it up at the time. Soon I had received enough money to follow through with the contract and this became the new Christ for All Nations headquarters. As this was happening, I felt another urge to travel south of Johannesburg and take a good look at the black township of Soweto. I did not want to close my eyes to this difficult place. So many whites were able to ignore it by separating their cities into black and white. Sprawled along the southern outskirts of Johannesburg, Soweto was a ghetto created by the South African gold rush. Rural blacks had been lured here for a century by the promise of good money to be made in the gold fields. As usual, the good money was made by the owners. The mine workers did the dirty and dangerous work and barely made enough to survive. Furthermore, apartheid required that they not live in the white portion of town, so Soweto had grown as the city for colored people south of the city limits. It lay beyond the great slag and tailings piles made by the processed gold ore. I arranged to be driven through Soweto in a local taxi cab so as not to draw attention to myself. Witch doctors dominated the spiritual life of the neighborhoods. People who were able to find jobs traveled to the surrounding white territory to work during the day, returning to Soweto at night. Unemployment remained high and crime rampant. At night the police would not venture here. 
The streets were controlled by rapists, murderers, drug dealers, addicts, and thieves who would kill for the change in your pocket or the jewelry on your hand. As I drove through the dirt and dust of that place, the Lord spoke to me. Soweto is like the poor man Lazarus lying at the door of the rich man, Johannesburg. You must do something for him. After seeing the place, I did not think it wise to gather a crowd here. The atmosphere seemed poisoned with bitterness and unrest. Another strategy occurred to me, one that I had tried successfully in Lesotho. We would raise a force of one hundred bicycle evangelists that would ride container bicycles full of Bibles, gospel literature and hymnals. We would train these men as witnesses and then send them from house to house during daylight hours until all of Soweto had heard the gospel. Again, this plan came to me before the funds came, but I began to present the vision in the white churches where I preached, and soon money began to come in to support it. One little grandmother handed me enough money to sponsor one bicycle evangelist. I will be thinking of that young man every day and praying for his safety and his success, she said. I knew immediately that this was from the Lord. I instructed my co-workers to be sure to match each witness with a prayer team that would hold him up in prayer each day as he went about his route. My growing team attached a giant map of Soweto to the wall. They divided the city into 100 districts and began seeking young men to train and assign to the various sections. The timetable for completing the entire plan was eight months. At this stage, the Gaborone's meetings were scheduled to begin, and I flew with Richard to Botswana. I had decided to conduct the campaign according to the words of Jesus recorded in his great commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. In my mind I saw myself preaching the gospel sermons, and Richard Ngidi conducting the healing ministry. Again I thought we would be like ebony and ivory. Our presence together would send a message to the entire region that we were brothers in Christ of equal value before God, and together we would cover at least two points in Christ's great commission, salvation and the signs that follow, specifically healing. As we entered the meeting hall, I could feel the emptiness. I could hear it. I could smell it. I looked about and immediately realized all of our advanced publicity had failed. When I counted heads, there were exactly 100 present, including myself. The room was designed for 800. I counted from right to left, 
and left to right. Recounting did not make it better. One hundred is one hundred from every angle. I was quite disappointed. I sensed that Richard was also uncomfortable. Not even his name had helped build the crowd in Gaborones. Perhaps that was because he was a Zulu, and we were now in the land of the Botswana. Pastaskefes then leaned over to me and told me proudly that all his forty members were in attendance. That deflated me even more. It meant that we had drawn no more than sixty souls beyond the members of his congregation. Pastaskefes had every right to say, I told you so. I remembered the day a few weeks ago when I arrived at his house with the wild idea of filling the National Sports Stadium, and now this. After preliminaries, I stood and opened my Bible to preach the ABC of the Gospel. I had preached perhaps ten to twenty minutes when a woman on the 100 stood up and shouted, I've just been healed. I stopped, stood, and did the same. Four or five people in all stood and made this claim of preaching the gospel of salvation. Yet people are being healed. We have not even laid hands on them according to scripture. At the conclusion of my sick to come forward, I told them that I would lay hands on them and pray. Something version I laid my hands on collapsed to the floor, and there they lay, row after row, with this manifestation. A man came running from the back of the room to me. I demand and faint and fall to the floor. I can't explain it. I need an explanation. Self, are you a doctor? Do you know what has happened to them? No, I don't. All I can tell you is, I didn't ask these people to lie down. What I have done on them, according to the words of Jesus in Mark 16, verse 18. So I suppose that moment one woman got up from the floor, shouting, I can see, I can see, I can see. She had fallen down blind, but she, this woman was well known to all the people. Another prostrate man who had prayed running without any need for them. Immediately the man who had been demanding no longer seemed angry. He was amazed and began to praise God. Dancing and screaming, they filled that nearly empty hall with a tremendous volume of sound that was heard in the surrounding neighborhoods. Some people came running to see what other God performed his own publicity. People sat on other people's laps. Others sat in window sills. There were two thousand people crowding outside, loudspeakers outside for them. For the first time in my life, I saw crowds of people running to Jesus at my invitation. They were crying tears of repentance as they came my breath again and again. Each night I asked Richard to pray sick after I had given the invitation for salvation. His great healing gift was evident, compassion for those he ministered to. Many other healings manifested a sign gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, we moved into the great stadium, not for Nash of the Gospel. I will never forget seeing in the crowd the faces of many of those pastors who had denied cooperation with these meetings. How things that I have nevertheless 
felled like roadkill. One night near the end of the campaign, packed into the stadium. The entire soccer field, as well as the stands, were both filled people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This startled me. I had never heard we had not sought for the baptism in our regular meetings where unbelievers might be present. We did it in private meetings restricted to believers only. Many people looking on might be confused by this display. They will. I felt the urging of the Lord to do this thing. I recalled how many years, but it had nothing to do with a group experience. How was it that God would fill an entire group at once in a public meeting? But on the day of Pentecost, in the upper room, those outside the meeting hall certainly heard them speak and misunderstood. But that had not mattered. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, were added to the Jerusalem church. Maybe now I would see something similar. I invited those who wanted to receive the baptism to come forward. Nearly 1,000 gathered grip of the language. I asked Richard Ngidi to explain how to receive the gift. As he explained it, he left out a fundamental part. Speak. I stood to correct him, but the Holy Spirit checked me. I felt that I should say nothing. I told the people that in response to God's voice, I would now pray for them to receive God's and close their eyes. I did not close my eyes. I wanted to see you. When they lifted their hands, I saw a transparent wave coming from sweeping over that stadium. As it hit those people, it was threw them to the ground en masse. All of them were speaking in tongues and proud about speaking in tongues. This confirmed to me that I had indeed heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in my heart. I had heard him true. It all without any hint of suggestion or manipulation. I'm not a weepies. I was greatly moved and changed inside to witness this divine moment. Last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. I became convinced that the vision of a blood-washed Africa will mighty outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. A deluge that will full. As the meetings closed, we held a public baptismal service. Five hundred converts followed the Lord in water baptism that day. This was the end of the first Christ for All Nations gospel campaign. I called my co-workers together back in Johannesburg. What we have seen is God's pattern to fulfill. His vision for a blood-washed Africa. We will take this gospel from Cape Town to Cairo. Cape Town to Cairo became our saying. We rented an old tent that we were told would shelter 800 people. I thought this was a good size, since our first facility in Gaborones had housed as many. If the crowds outgrew the tent, we would do as we had done then and try to find larger accommodations. But we had to start somewhere. And I began to tell anyone who would listen that we really needed a tent that would seat 5,000 people. 
No one seemed to take up this idea and offer support. With that, I dispatched team members immediately to arrange a campaign in Cape Town. News of the Gaborones meetings began to create a stir in the white churches where I spoke. During a speaking engagement in a local white church, a wealthy man approached me after I told of our colporteur plan for Soweto. How many bicycles have not yet been sponsored? he asked. Eighty-five, I replied. I will sponsor those eighty-five. My heart leapt with joy. I hugged him and went straight to the bicycle manufacturer and signed a contract for the full order. Well, the money did not come. I reminded God that he was my source of supply, not any man, and especially not this rich man. As events unfolded, I would simply trust God to lead me to the right sorts of funding for this project. As I departed for the Cape Town meetings, my mind was full of these thoughts. Suddenly I heard the Spirit say, Next year you will preach in America. This seemed to come out of nowhere. My mind was on South Africa, not America. I knew not one person there. Besides, I was nearly 35 years old. Christ for Nations was an infant, not even one year old. My reputation would certainly not carry me very far in America. During the Guguletu meeting, I asked Richard Ngidi to pray for the sick. There were many notable miracles, including a crippled man in a wheelchair who got up and walked. A local TV news camera happened to be on hand and the miracle made headlines. The crowds grew and we saw wonderful results. Back in Johannesburg, I attended the annual AFM conference at Maranatha Park. While there, a man approached and introduced himself. His name was Paul Schock. By his very name, I could tell that he shared a German heritage. He said he was the pastor of an Assemblies of God church in Oakland, California. He had heard of Magabaron's meetings. When are you coming to America? he asked. Next year, I replied, smiling to myself. I recalled the words of the Holy Spirit as I had flown to Cape Town. Next year, you will preach in America. Paul was delighted with my answer. He made arrangements for me to preach at his church when I came. He also booked me on a preaching circuit to other churches. We became lifelong friends, and over the years he introduced me to many other churches in America, for which I am eternally grateful. After the AFM convention, I made a special trip to Germany. I visited father and mother. Father had retired from preaching. I spoke in Karlsruhe, Hamburg, Kempe and other places friendly to our cause. On that trip, the German believers became the primary sponsors of the remaining bicycles needed for our Soweto campaign. That made me so happy. I was received as a son in churches of Erwin Müller, Paula Gassner and many other German churches. As our first year with Christ for Nations came to a close, we had already made plans for the following year. Port Elizabeth, Windhoek, Namibia, and two Swaziland campaigns at Mancini 
and Mbaban. I was soon to be hit by another challenge from the Holy Spirit that would take me to another level. 